This is episode 57 with Ben Hewlett. G'day legends and welcome to Your Life of Impact, where we connect with world-class athletes and coaches, health experts and enthusiasts, inspiring entrepreneurs and community leaders, all to teach you how to tap into your inner excellence. I'm your host, Brett Robbo, and I'm extremely grateful you're joining us today on your impactful journey. You know when you meet people and you feel that they humbly have so much to offer to the world, but their level of presence and the way they deliver their impact is so genuine and right that you just want to have everyone you know spend time with that person to learn from the kindness that oozes from their soul? Welcome to the life of Benny Hewlett. Benny was in the Australian military for 14 years and now works in the mines in the proud little community of Cobar where I grew up. I've known Benny for a couple of years now and the way he smothers himself into community and charity engagements is mind-blowing and infectious. This episode goes pretty deep. Benny shares some intriguing life experiences in and out of the Defence Force that have shaped some of his greatest life experiences and also carved some of his deepest mental scars. You'll learn a lot about Benny's battles with mental ill health and what coping strategies work for him. If you've experienced any major challenges or adversities in your life or have a lived experience of mental ill health or know someone who has, you will gain a lot of value from this episode. I loved hearing Benny come to the realization during this chat how the small community and his involvement with community helps with his anxiety. Towards the end, Benny talks a lot about Cobar and his involvement, and I like having this aspect in the podcast to help shine some light on my upbringing, my community, and my story. As I mentioned in episode triple zero of Your Life of Impact, this podcast isn't just about getting legends on to teach us things and tell us cool stories. It's also me reflecting on my journey and enjoying my path forward. And because Cobar is my roots, my heritage and my pride, I'm proud to bring this aspect into this episode. Also, Benny goes into a lot of detail of the development and organization that has gone into his biggest charity fundraiser ever that's happening in October this year, 2018. It's a pretty cool story and for anyone interested in the movie called Running on Empty from 1982, this section is for you. I have no doubt that many of the people who are attending that charity event will be listening to this episode, so you'll appreciate and respect Benny's story around it. We do start with some big belly laughs, which is also what Benny is known for. He has a great sense of humor and a very intriguing life that we can all learn an abundance from. Enjoy. (laughs) (laughs) That's... Hand on my heart, that's actually not a photo of me. Are you sure? Yeah, I'm looking I'm at you right positive. now. There was a photo very, very, very similar to that from um, circa 2000. 
four or five in Townsville when I was young and single and fairly silly on the weekends, but not riding a lawnmower naked with um, a T-shirt on my head. That looks so much like you. <laughs> and I found it on your Facebook profile, so I don't know whether to believe you or not because I know you're into motor cars and, and motors. So I'm thinking that – so for everyone listening, Benny did just mention it, but it's it's him – <laughs> Maybe it's not him. It's a naked man that looks very much like Benny sitting on a red ride-on lawnmower and uh, with a beer in his hand. <laughs> the one that does exist isn't a ride-on mower. It's a mini moke and it's on Magnetic Island from off the coast of town. <laughs> yeah. So they do exist. There's, there's, there's stuff out there. There's stuff out there. <laughs> <laughs> Classic. Now, Benny, before we move into and dive into your very interesting journey, I want to say welcome to your life of impact. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. I'm really, I'm really honoured to be here. Thank you very much. I'm stoked to have you here. We've been connected because of the awesome Cobar community and actually through the Batir, the way that we were first connected was through the Batir part of Cobar and we're in Cobar at the moment. I'm lucky enough to be kicking back at the Gould Street Resort where my mum is. We've decided to record here because you said that your wonderful family and your three kids probably wouldn't be the best background <laughs> music for us. No, no. As much as I love them. Yeah, quiet recording studio, my place is not. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> and we're in air conditioning because it's been plus 40 here today and it's you know almost eight o'clock at night and i think it's still 30 plus degrees yeah overnight of 28 29 degrees still so we're not out of it yet (laughs) (laughs) now you were born in country victoria yes and you were more into motorsports than sports yes and your family were big into water skiing but you left home at 18 and you had a crack at uni, but it wasn't quite your cup of tea. I suppose when you're, when you're 16 or 17, especially back in the 90s when we were at school, there was a big emphasis to go to university. And I felt a lot of that emphasis in year 10, 11 and 12. And there was friends of mine I was quite jealous of because they had a very well-defined path before them. And they'd made a lot of choices to sort of walk that path. And that suited them and that was great. And I looked at that with admittedly a lot of envy because I had no idea what I wanted to do with myself and I was just sort of I'll do physics at year 12 because I didn't know what else to do Uh, I might as well chuck PE in in there as well because you know that's outside and that'll be fun so I got to the end of year 12 and I had these marks and the marks were pretty good I was like well what are we going to do with these marks and I didn't know and a couple of friends of mine they decided they were going to do mechanical engineering and I thought yeah, <laughs> why not? So I enrolled to do mechanical engineering and first couple of months in, I thought, I don't want to do mechanical engineering. <laughs> but the university social side of what I thought was fantastic, got to meet heaps of cool people and go to heaps of cool parties, met a lot of pre-graduate nurses and pre-graduate teachers and I spent a lot of time with those people. By the time I got to the end of that first year, my only year at university, I thought, oh, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And I dropped out and had a lot of pub gigs. I had a job at a pub when I was at uni and basically I could go down there on a Wednesday night or a weekend, have a few beers and they'd let me put it on a tab and then I'd go in there on the weekend and wash a few glasses and sort of work me tab back down to nothing and then do it all again the next week. So I'd dish pig for a while in a pub and then working behind the bar and... And I think it was actually mum's cousin that said to me, oh, you know, you like being outdoors, grew up in the country, why don't you get a trade and join the army? And it was honestly something I'd never even considered before. I'm like, do a trade in the army? I'm like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, right, eh? I'll try that out. And 
you know, then you're in filling out your paperwork and the paperwork goes away and then you go for a bit of an interview and the grumpy old sergeant behind the desk decides whether he likes you or not. And then all of a sudden, you know, you're doing this physical testing down in Melbourne and before you know it, you're on a bus and mum and dad are waving and mum's crying and you're like, oh, crap, this just got really serious. (laughs) And then next thing you know, you're at basic training for 13 weeks, which is – and it's designed to put you out of your comfort zone. And there was one – I remember about halfway through, I just thought, oh, you know what – you can just shove this. <laughs> I thought, nah, this isn't for me. Anyway, a couple of guys in my room, Mick Keep, or I remember Mick, and there was a couple of others said, look, don't worry about it. They're just playing mind games with you. They're just playing mind games with you. Like, yeah, yeah. And I stuck it out another day. Then I stuck it out another week. And then before you knew it, you graduated. And then we're off to Aubrey Wodonga doing my trade training as a mechanic in the army. And then that sort of went past fairly quick, 18 months. And then all of a sudden I was in Brisbane doing more training and that went past pretty quick. Another 18 months I was in Townsville. I was up there for a year and all of a sudden I'm in East Timor. So I've gone from dropping out of uni, got no idea what to do with my life and I'm in a foreign country with a language I don't speak or maybe six words with a rifle cruising around the airport of Dili about to go down towards the border, down towards Moliana, a camp that we had set up there and that would be my home for the next seven months and... And I'll be totally honest, that experience was fantastic. I'd look back on that completely fondly. For what reason? What was what was good about that experience? Uh, it's a really bad analogy. And if you ask any guy that's ever been in the Army, we can never pinpoint a really good one. A firefighter trains all the time to run into a burning building or put out flames in a burning building or someone's house is on fire. And it's not exactly the most ideal situation. Everyone's running the other way and you're running in. So doing all this training in any aspect of the military, you want to be able to put that skills into application. You want to be able to do all that kind of stuff. So to train up and actually have a prepotus, like to actually have a point where all that training culminated in that event was deeply, deeply satisfying. And it tested you, tested you mentally being away from everything you knew for seven months, tested you physically because even though I we went from Townsville to East Timor, you know, they measure rain in feet over there and it gets hot and it gets humid. And there's all these people out there that you don't know and you've never met and they're carrying a weapon and vice versa, you've got the same feelings and you're on opposite teams. That's not like going out and playing a game of football and at the end of it you walk past and handshakes, even though you might not like them. Sportsmanship, you know, there's no sportsmanship when you're at war. So that was, that whole experience was all... Very intense, but look, loved it. Absolutely loved the experience. Thrived on it. To go and deploy with the Defence Force, yeah, it was fantastic. Really enjoyed it. And that was seven months there, but you were in the Defence Force for 14 years. So, yeah, I, I ended up... So, you know, one minute you're on the bus waving goodbye to mum, next minute you're doing something else, next minute you're overseas, and all of a sudden you turn around and and 14 years go past. And it is, it's a fairly fast tempo in, in the military, especially in the Army. If you're not training to deploy, you're deployed. And then you come back and you have a you know, period of time off, month or two months or three months off, and then you're back in a training cycle again. So it's all it's all fairly dynamic and it's something different nearly every day. So that period of time, that can go past so fast, so fast. It, it tends to turn young men and women into worldly or older men and women, especially guys in infantry. Like you meet someone who's been in infantry 15, 20 years and their body is years beyond what their, their mental age is. These guys that are 35 and backs are gone, hips are gone, knees are gone, ankles are gone. 
Um, it does turn you into an old man. But but look, all the experiences I had in the military were all fairly positive. Actually, most of them were all really positive. So yeah. And what are some of the things that you take from what you learned about yourself and about human behaviour and people in general from the army that you take into everyday life and your working life now? You can nearly write a thesis on that one. <laughs> um, for me, I suppose the first and foremost, and a lot of people get this, is the camaraderie is second to none. Like I've played on football teams before and you've got a really good sense of camaraderie and brotherhood. But to spend time in the army like that, like you've got people there that you'd literally do anything for, absolutely anything for. The camaraderie was second to none. If you thought of yourself for anything, you'd think of someone else at the same time or first. Geez, I'm hungry. Oh, these boys will be hungry too. I'll, I'll grab the pizzas and they'll sort it out later. You know, later on when, when you ended up, if you are in a relationship or you had kids or anything like that and one of the guys went away, your first thought would be, oh, we'll just ring up, make sure the kids are all good and the missus has got everything, his missus has got everything. You know, might go around there, mow the lawns. If you haven't get-togethers, you make sure you include them in absolutely everything you do. And that, for everyone I know that spent any period of time in the military, to get out of the military back into civilian life, that's a huge culture shock not to have that anymore. It's the biggest culture shock, I would say, actually. To learn about yourself, teamwork, especially if you've got a really tight section or a really tight platoon, teamwork's just amazing. And especially if you deploy with people like these are guys you're living with, your bed's, you know, two arms lengths away from their bed. By the time you spend seven months together, you know, everything they like, everything they hate, where they grew up, all their ex-girlfriends, every single bit of music they like. You know everything intimately about this guy, almost like you're in a relationship with him. What about things like focus and discipline? Discipline's a huge one and you don't... It's sort of something that's ingrained in you over time in the military, you know, even if it's a fairly short period of time. But because it builds up within you and they teach this discipline, it's only in the absence of that do you notice how good your discipline was. Old men are always 10 times fitter in the stories they tell about themselves 20 (laughs) years ago. And we're all like that. But you don't realise how fit we were and how strongly bonded we were and how disciplined we were, like everything down to the way you dress, the way you speak. And I, you know, I'm one of those guys that tends to have a couple of beers and I get a bit of Italian and talk with my hands. Like you never used to do that when you are in the military. It was hands by side. You'd talk in a certain manner. You'd be respectful, courteous. You know, boots would be shiny, shirt was tucked in, haircut was always immaculate. Had to shave every single day and by my appearance now, you wouldn't pick that. <laughs> it's probably those those big qualities, the teamwork and the discipline. Yeah, they're big ones. How's life now post-army and post-deployment? Do you take any mental or emotional scars with you from that time? Um, big culture shock when I first did charge from the army. That was nearly six years ago now. I really honestly struggled in pretty much every aspect of my life for the first 12 months. So married for 10 years this year, but not forget that. Congratulations. Thank you. (laughs) Three kids. So when I discharged from the army, we had two kids, two boys. And the first two years, I really struggled. And I struggled with getting back into society just as a normal civilian, not as a soldier. I struggled with not that any of the companies I worked were lacking, but they didn't have the same level of discipline and they didn't have the same level of accountability. And at first I thought maybe this is just me, maybe this is a Ben Hewlett readdressing in a society thing, but the more and more 
men and women I spoke to experience exactly the same thing. And I think because of social media and because it's more acceptable now to talk about your feelings, I think there's more support groups out there now. I know a really good mate of mine, Glenn Ferrarotto, he started Ironside Recruitment because he noticed there was a gap between discharging from the military forces and trying to gain employment and there was no one there that specialised in trying to place ex-veterans back into society. And look, and hats off to him, he's an amazing bloke and he's worked really hard to achieve the success that business has. But that feeling that I had when I discharged from the army, Glenn has sort of helped fill that space with that recruiting process, that company. I really can't put into words how much of a shock it was for me to finish up and, and try and get back into society. That's a brilliant service. Anything that can bridge those kind of gaps is super powerful. Now, I know we've spoken before and you mentioned that actually those sort of mental and emotional scars that you carry with you through life actually don't come from your time within defence. And like you said, that you have so many positive experiences and so many good things. Now, I believe there was a fair incident in your life in 2006 that gave you a bit of a shake-up. Like you said, everything that happened in the military, I think, was there wasn't many negative aspects to that. But in, in January, in early January 2006, as you alluded to before, we were a family that enjoyed water skiing. We were up the river, the Murray River, and we are in Dad's boat, and I'd taken out my i'd taken dad for a ski actually so we had a routine dad would drive the boat and take all of us for a ski mum and the kids and the cousins and the friends and then because i was actually quite a good boat driver i'd drive dad for the rest of the day and dad was a brilliant water skier brilliant water skier anyway this particular day i'd taken dad for a ski and in the boat i had my 12 year old cousin and my best mate and we were so 26 at the time so this was a guy I'd known since I was five. So this is, you know, when you think of your best friend that you've known forever, someone who knows all your secrets, this was that guy, Troy, really good mate. Anyway, we'd gone for taking dad for a ski. We'd come back, dad had dropped off and we turned the boat around and they weren't quite sure in the investigation what exactly had happened, but it was surmised that we may have hit an under, uh, submerged log down the river. When wood floats down the river, it just sort of floats at the surface. Anyway, we got shot up the bank because we were through a turn and the type of boat it is you had to power on to turn. Like when you're on a jet ski, you've got to power to turn. And it actually shot us up the bank at about 40 miles an hour. In a boat, there's very, very few times when you're in a boat you're actually restrained. Like think about all the times you've been out on a boat fishing or, or skiing or whatever. And I fared the best out of it, unfortunately. That particular crash took the life of my cousin, uh, Usher. He was only 12. My best friend, Troy, he had very very severe head injuries he was unconscious and fitting and he was in a really bad way i'd had enough first aid training to know when i looked at him the, the signs and symptoms that we had that he, he was his body was shutting down and i i didn't get out of it totally incident free either i busted a heap of teeth out of my head front and rear lobe hits busted my chin open right arm and nearly lost that from one of the lacerations i had um, totally tore the artery out shattered my right tibia like a coffee cup split that in two and um, destroyed my left talus and that was I got out of that easy they airlifted they the paramedics arrived maybe 20 30 minutes later and they worked on Usher for a fair while unsuccessful Troy got airlifted and he'd spend the next four years in hospital he was in the next four months in a coma if I remember correctly 
and I had 12 months off work and a lot of that time was spent in hospital bed and then back at mum and dad's they'd made up enough facilities for me to access with a wheelchair and then I had to learn to walk again and not only all that physical stuff that I just mentioned and of quite a thick medical fire by the time I discharged from the army because of it but there was a lot there was a big big mental health journey that would begin with that crash I can understand why just going back to that incident so you you said that you helped Troy were you doing the CPR um I wasn't helping Troy with the CPR he was unconscious breathing but fitting and he was bleeding from um bleeding from different parts of his head my cousin I'd gone over to and I knew he wasn't breathing and our other cousin on the other side of the family he'd run up to the boat and he and his wife the three of us were there and they started CPR and EAR and I'd remained conscious I was I was bleeding fairly heavily I was starting to bleed out a bit so I took off my very best audio slave t-shirt and I tied a tourniquet around my arm had a police officer help me out with that um so probably the gravity of the situation didn't really hit me for a few hours after that all happened and the extent of my injuries certainly didn't hit me until uh, when I started to be fairly cognizant of what happened a few days later so yeah and when you talk about those mental battles that you took from that time what what have they looked for like for you over time so initially it was I can say this now because you know I've seen the professionals to know what I was going through now but initially it was really 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 vivid flashbacks of the crash you know you'd start you'd be lying I was stuck in bed there was nowhere I could go or anything I could do so these flashbacks would come they usually come in sort of black and white and it would hit you and you'd have that adrenaline when they talk about you know that rush of cold blood that adrenaline hitting an empty stomach and you'd relive absolutely you'd have to relive every single aspect of the crash and you'd remember it and the taste and the smells and the sounds and if you tried to fight off like not think about it and talk over the top of it or put a movie on or put music on and if you didn't let that replay through your head it'd just delay it so you'd wake up or it'd be a couple of hours later in bed and all of a sudden these flashbacks start coming at you to the point where I got prescribed some sleeping tablets to be able to get rest because I just physically wasn't sleeping because of the PTSD, which is what it was, I found out later. That's post-traumatic stress. And I'd relive these flashbacks and then it was I looked forward to night time because I could have dinner, have a couple of sleeping tablets and actually get some rest. A year later, I found out they took those particular sleeping tablets off the market because they were making people sleepwalk, but I couldn't being non-weight bearing. And then over time, I guess the flashbacks were still there, not as vivid, but I started to experience a lot more depression and not so much the anxiety side of it, which is quite common with the PTSD, until later on. And that was more to do with more to do with fear that something would happen to one of my kids. And I still to this day, it's like still do we sit here like I think it was only a couple of days ago I had a bad anxiety attack something that my mind completely fabricated that what if something very bad happened to one of the kids and that's and that's one of the battles that I still have daily and that's what are we talking 12 years ago now and you had professional help through that grieving period and absolutely I had a really good family network like my mother is an amazing lady my father when he was alive fantastic fantastic bloke some really good friends um, I did see a psychologist once that I found not boring but rudimentary. Like he asked me questions and I thought, 
I might be on a leather couch in a movie. Like it just, how do you feel about your mother type questions? And I quickly palmed him off and it was only later I thought that it wasn't that he wasn't professional in what he was doing. It's just that particular particular professional didn't suit me at my time. And I think any any road that you walk with mental health, you've just got to bear with it sometimes and sometimes you'll meet a professional and you won't have that, you won't click with them, you won't have that connection with them and don't give up. And I found it was a psychologist I saw and it wasn't until a few months later I was in a rehab with all the golden oldies with hip replacements and I was learning to walk to get out of my wheelchair. And I met a counsellor, John, and he just used to cruise around the St John's in Bendigo, St John's Hospital in Bendigo. And he was one of the best I've had because he challenged a lot of theories. I had a lot of guilt and blame I had for, for Usher and Troy and what I thought I'd inflicted on our family. And he challenged a lot of the theories I had about that and that was probably when I really woke up to a lot of facts that not every professional is going to suit you, not every theory that you have in life is correct and it's really easy to be quite selfish with with mental ill health. And that's a really good way to put it actually because I I believe that you do sort of take on that selfishness and we know where that blame and that guilt can take you, but it must have been hard when someone challenges you because that situation is very serious and it's very vivid in your life and it's easy to fall into that mentality. Do you remember what it was like when he first challenged you? Did you did you rebut that challenge? Uh, when I disagree with someone or when they say something I don't agree with, initially I will remain fairly silent, maybe just nod my head. And I'll think, nah, that's crap. Or if I do think that, oh, maybe I'm wrong, I still won't say anything. And I'll just let it sink in and I'll, I'll, I'll take that conversation we've had away and I'll think about it and I'll think about it and I'll think about it and I'll come back and I'm like, he's probably right or they're probably right or she's probably right. But it's sort of, and especially when, so not that long of um, period of time had passed since the crash. So everything you felt everything that was going on in life was really acute. If you felt depressed, you were just ridiculously low. If you felt anxious, it was just like you felt like your heart was going to burst out of your chest. If you felt sad, you just feel like you want, all you wanted to do was just cry. So when someone challenges you on a theory and you're very on edge, I'm trying to think of a better word, but everything you feel is quite Reactive. acute. Reactive, absolutely. So because he challenged me straight away, it sort of shut me down. And I'm like, what did he just say? And I had, I'd sort of grabbed a hold of this blame that I had for the accident and that blame was mine. I was going to hold it close to me forever and everything I did was going to be based on this blame that I had. That I think if I'd continued down on that path, maybe it would be a very, very, very different story. I know at one point in time it got maybe as, as bad as you would consider mental ill health to be without taking that last sort of step. I know I was definitely there once and... And it was the first time I'd seen Troy after he'd come out of his coma. And I saw this is my best friend and I saw my best friend and his brain damage was that severe at that time that it just destroyed me, absolutely destroyed me. And I remember I was just, I think I told a fib to the doctor and said I was right to drive an automatic because I had my left leg in plaster but I was driving a manual in Melbourne in the city. It wasn't a good idea but anyway... And I'd seen Troy and I was driving home and it was as low as I've ever been in my life. And the only reason I probably didn't 
pursue that thinking any further at that point in time because it was it was it was it was there I didn't want to lay that level of guilt on my family I looked at everything that happened to my uncle and my auntie and my cousin that their brother and their son had passed I didn't want my mum and dad and my brother to go through that so that's probably what pulled me up so yeah look it's it's and anyone who's and everyone's been through some kind of journey with mental mental health, both good and bad, and everyone's had probably the lowest of lows and they can remember it. So the gamut of emotions that attack you over a period of time, especially now when you look at it and say, yeah, 12 years and where I've come and, you know, support from parents and the support from, you know, wife and kids has been amazing. So I, I asked you a little bit about that challenge because I think of people that are listening that, grateful that they haven't had to experience massive adversity in their life which is awesome and you know i teach people about mental strength training to be the best version of themselves and we talk about not waiting for the tsunami in your life don't wait for that big adversity don't wait for that big challenge to then think about how you can become stronger from that and i look at that what the psychologist did with you in bendigo and him challenging you that's exactly how we get the best out of people and their minds and their emotional states by almost teaching them how to hold up a mirror and reflect and be brutally honest with themselves and with those support networks at the same time that's how we can look forward so it was interesting to hear how that worked for you in those situations because some people feel can be reactive and shut that off when in actual fact it's a really powerful technique for us to learn, grow and develop and move forward from those strategies. Because like you said, if you didn't attach to that and and believe what he had said, who knows where it could have taken you. But in actual fact now, that's not a thought you need to have. Mm. So kudos to you for not thinking that too often. How is your friend that came out of the coma 12 years ago? Um, So Troy's in the position now where... Uh, once we got through the first 12 months post-accident, um, we then had to contend with a court case. And uh, the court case is basically there's insurance involved and someone has to be liable for that insurance to pay out so that Troy receives proper care. And I didn't understand all this at the time. I understood what a barrister and solicitor's bill looked like at the end of every day at court. So... I'm going through these gamut emotions. I'm still learning to get my body back on track. I'm still trying to learn what capabilities I do and don't have. And then I'm, you know, taking a week at a time off work to go to court. So I've got to relive everything again. And they even had the boat there during the court case. We had to walk through the boat. And um, that whole time it was pretty hard not to feel guilty about where Troy was. But what I didn't know was for the insurance company to pay that for Troy to receive um, a payout, I, I had to be found liable. So I was guilty, um, $1,500 fine, no recorded conviction, walk out of court. For a couple of months, I used that as a as a, as a a noose around my neck. So, and, yep, the judge said I'm guilty. So I can go back to blame myself again. Anyway, I had some um, close people sort of help me realise that I was being a muppet about that. Um so Troy, anyone who's ever known anyone to receive a very significant head injury, um, a lot of people that do suffer brain damage do recover and it's extraordinarily slow but it does happen. So Troy to talk to initially, some days wouldn't know who you were, some days he did. As it got better, 
the days you'd go see him months later, he would know exactly who you were, didn't remember anything for months before the accident, was in full-time care. A um, couple of years after that, he moved into a house in Echuca and he was receiving care every day. There'd be someone there for him. And then he got a little bit more independent. They got him a push bike and he was getting around town, um, which was good. And then he had a couple of little accidents around town. And still now he's at the point where um, Troy can hold a conversation and he does things that he used to do pre-accident. like And one of the most annoying things he does, but you've got to love him for it, when we drive in a car anywhere, he'll crack the window just to get a little bit of air in it, but he'll crack it so the window whistles and it drives me insane. But the first time he did that post-accident, I thought, he's still in there. The Troy, I, Troy I grew up with is still in there and that was incredible when that first happened. So Troy text or messages now and we message back and, you know, people get busy in their lives and when we can see each other, we can. But, you know, social media is a great thing these days for keeping in contact with people you don't see every day. So we sort of use that mostly to talk and some days he'll talk about the accident, what it's done to him and other days he'll just want to talk about whatever, the weather, cars. Yeah, so... And it's been a long road. It's been a very long road to come where he has. But the the journey he's made has been amazing to get to where he's got to today. So well, I'm glad to hear you guys are still in contact. Yeah. Tell Troy yeah. I say good day. <laughs> now around the mental health and talking about how we met, and I mentioned Batir earlier. And you're a big supporter of Batir, and I believe some other mental health organisations as well. Is that because you've had a lived experience or you continually have like you said with your anxiety attacks those lived experiences that you are a great supporter of those mental health organizations um i would say yes i'd have to um that's a good question i'll give you that that's a really good question um do i support these organizations because of my lived experience Uh, i'd have to say yes i'd have to say yes and the more i think about it right now there's there was a guy really good friend of my uncle's Juan. He was, he is, uh, he's Mexican, went to school in Germany and then came to Australia. Amazing man, speaks about six or seven languages, just incredible, brain the size of a planet and he suffers from depression really badly and after Usher passed and we had a commemorative service a year later, he said something to me and I'll never forget, I was having a really bad day, I really struggled with the, the service and because it was the first time I'd ever spent time with the whole family since it happened. And he said, you know we're lucky. And I looked at him, I'm like, what? And he goes, you know we're lucky. And he goes, because we've been down so low that everybody else doesn't realise how good they've got it. And he goes, because everything from being at the bottom is up. And he goes, and every day can be better. And he goes, not every day is a step forward, but he goes, every day can be better. And I thought about that every day for the longest. And every now and again it pops in my head. You know, especially someone that's that's the depression's heavy and it pulls you down. And when you get to the bottom of it, sometimes you do. You look up and you go, "Wow, if I've been down as far as I can go, well, the only place I've got left to go is up." And that sort of really rang true and stuck with me. So I've got a really big empathy for anyone who's who's gone through any kind of walk in life with mental ill health. So there's sometimes when I have my anxiety attacks and I don't want to be around people and crowds are the last thing I want anything to do with and then 
there's sometimes when I come out of a low bout of depression and I just want to hug everyone. Anyone who's had a bad day, I just want to hold you and say, look, I know you're having a crappy day and I get you're hurting, but it's going to be all right. I promise it's going to be all right. So you sort of swing between these versions of yourself and these moods you have and I've found that with my depression, every now and again when I come out of my depression, I'll have this little spark of motivation and and in the back of my mind I'll think, don't be lazy, get up and go and do this, which might have been go and do this for Batir, go and, go and speak about your lived experience with Batir or get up and make that email and ring that person and try and organise money for that organisation, go and do something. Because I found when I don't do that, I'm really hard on myself later for it. Like, you had that bit of motivation two days ago and we did nothing. And I said, no, we don't have motivation. We don't want to do it. Why did we do that, you muppet? So next time I get that little glimpse of just get motivated, just go and do it. I'll try and seize that every time. Every time I'll try and seize that. And it's become so much of a habit now that, you know, even your own mother even says my brain doesn't switch off and it doesn't if I don't let it because I'll just try and grasp that motivation and run with it for those causes. Yeah, well, that's brilliant. You're funneling it in the right way and there's a, we had Dan Kalapsky on here in an earlier episode talking about the yes-end theory and he's created this yes-end motion. It's almost like that where you have these ideas and you say yes and this is what I'm going to do about it yes that's a great idea and I will do this so you're actually acting on it and it sounds like it's almost a tool for you to that you know now that it won't let you funnel you down the darker sort of tunnel for sure from what you've learned from it I've just had to learn to keep a calendar on me um, on my phone because I can lose track of stuff. <laughs> by saying yes to too much yeah absolutely one thing that you said to me was every day is a new battle of the same war. Sometimes you win, sometimes you learn. Tell us what a win is and tell us also what a learning experience looks like. Um, So a simple win for me on a day when I'm not having my greatest days could be something as easy as music is proof that we have a soul. Um, you have a physical reaction to simple vibrations travelling into ear and tickling follicles in your eardrum. And if you're having a really average day and all of a sudden you can find that bit of music or that playlist you made just kicks the best song on for you just then and you think about everything you've gone through, you know, average song, what, is about three, three and a half minutes and in three and a half minutes you can have a journey of everything you've ever done in your life and you can come out the other side of it and go, I feel that little bit better. And it would be something as simple as a song. For me, I can be having a down day and I'll have one of the kids come up to me and I'll really be into whatever the, the kid's saying to me today or the way they're even looking at me. And that can be enough to just go, oh, wow, I've got to be a good version of me because I need to be that for that person because they think I'm just the greatest thing that God ever breathed life into, you know. And I look at the way the kids look at me and I think I've got to be a good version of myself for that. There's days when I don't feel like that. There's days when I come home and go, geez, I'm not doing this dad thing well or I'm not doing this husband thing well and I'll beat myself up about it. And that is one of the days when I learn because when I'm reflective or when we are people is reflective because we think, we think all the time about everything. When I'm reflective on that day, I'm like, I should have gone over and given my wife a kiss when I walked back into the house rather than being grumpy because I'm having a bad day. 
I should have gone up straight away rather than getting grumpy with the kids because they'd made a mess and they'll run around naked with sticks like it's Lord of the Flies. I should have just grabbed them and hugged them and told them I loved them. So when I'm reflective, it's because I've conducted myself in a way that I don't like later on. But then there's days when, and I remember remember feeling like a pre-accident where I'd feel like a big tree just swaying gently in the in the breeze, just back and forth. And life is a rhythm, and life is good, and geez, everything in life's lining up, and it's great. And I love seeing previews of that every now and again. I'll get that feeling. I'll go, geez, everything's going all right today. Geez, it's really good day today. I'm really just enjoying this. I hope nothing changes. Don't look at my phone. Don't go outside. It'll be fine. Everything's good. And and a lot of that too is, especially through the depression stuff, not so much the anxiety, the depression, if we all meditate at some level, meditation might be as easy as you're doing something at home but you're thinking about something at the same time. For me, it's driving. I think about everything when I drive. I could be thinking about something and the music's playing and the window's down and I'll be thinking about everything and all of a sudden I'll be thinking about my mental health and I'll be thinking about Troy and Usher and... And some days I'll get to the other end of that thinking. It might be five minutes or 15 minutes and I'll feel great. I'll feel really good. I'll feel like I've got resolution. And early on after the accident, that was every day. And I'd go, today was a good day. I feel, I feel great. And then you wake up the next day and you feel like crap. You're like, where was all that resolution I had yesterday? Like why, why am I feeling like everything's a battle today? It's hard to breathe. It's heavy to get up. I don't, have, don't feel like eating breakfast because I'm not hungry. I'm like, where was this yesterday? Why am I so down today and I was good yesterday? And then whatever that day brings and whatever experiences you had and then you reflect at the end of that day and you're like, geez, I should have just got up out of bed and I felt great after I had something to eat and I got outside and I started moving. There's a lot to be said for exercise, for mental health. So once you get moving, you know, sometimes you're like, ah, why was I so lazy and pulling the sheets over my head and I don't want to get out and face the world and then some days you do and you get out and you walk and you think oh, I'm glad I got up movement is medicine Absolutely. in in many regards now you work in the mining industry now and you have for a few years and I had Peter Finn on the podcast just recently from face contracting Finney yes and we discussed one of the gaps in the mining industry related to the understanding an investment into human behavior and people as people and not just workers or transactional relationships and not so much related to mental ill health but as you with experience in the mental health battles uh, do you see this as common in the industry where there is that gap around not with that human behavior element and actually educating the workers i'm talking from first year apprentices right through to the head honchos in the mines it's big it's a really big gap think about it as a resume the mining industry you look at your resume and say brett robinson was educated here and he's had this experience here therefore i think he'll fit into this team ben hewlett was educated here and he has these skill sets so i think he'll manage in this team here once they're in those teams and you're working on those crews, sometimes it's hard because the mining industry can be frantic, sometimes it can be slow, it's a bit all over the place. But there's not a real emphasis on leaders, supervisors to really get to know and understand their people. I'm not the world's greatest tradesman, I'm not even in the top million, I'm way down the list in terms of tradesmen, but I've got good people skills. That's probably the only thing. 
I've got good people skills. So when I've been a corporal and a sergeant in the army and I'm a supervisor again now, I'll watch people and everyone does it on some level. You go to the mall in Sydney or the mall in Brisbane or Melbourne and you sit on the street and you watch people. People, people watch all the time. I try and do that with my guys regardless of where I am. What motivates them? Why are they in the mining industry? Why is this guy a diesel fitter? Was his dad a diesel fitter? What what gets him excited to get out of bed and go to work in the morning? No, none of us get out of bed in the mining industry. There is some people that love it, absolutely love it. But most of us do it so we can enjoy a lifestyle. It's an even time roster. It's a good wage. We've got all this other time we can do things. But, you know, you need to understand there's a guy I know at work. He's a brilliant tradesman. But I can't go up and talk to him while he's physically doing something because he's so engrossed in what he's doing he he will talk to me and I'll think he's being rude or ignorant, but he's not. He's just really, really focused. There's another guy I've got and he's a really great guy, but he reacts very quickly to something. Something goes wrong and he'll come into the door and he'll be swinging the door off its hinges and this is all gone to poo. It's all bad. And you'll be like, mate, just go and take a breather, go and get a drink. I'll be out with you in five minutes because I'll never talk to him straight away when he's like that. He'll walk around for five minutes, he'll calm down and then we'll get to the bottom of what's going on and we'll fix it. I think when you understand your people and you understand their personality type and you understand what motivates them, you can get them to work. You can get them to work so much better when you understand someone's personality type, how they educate themselves, what type of learner they are, yeah, and what motivates them. Yeah, they're internal drivers. Absolutely. And if you can learn that in your team, sometimes you've got a big team, that's bloody hard work. You know, most, if you're sort of between that 5 and 25 crew size or team size, you should over a period of time get to know all those people and understand that. And I think if, and I've seen really good leaders do it and really good leaders do it and they don't even have to motivate the team because they motivate themselves and it's amazing to watch and I just think, yeah, I want to be like that. It's that whole thing too, like you said, some people love the industry, some people don't, but what's the point in any industry if we go to work and we're not happy and we're miserable and we're not enjoying that time, we often spend just as much time at work as what we do in the home environment. So to have that gap bridged where you have leaders, you have everyone on the same sort of wavelength where there is that interaction, that people understanding what relationships are, people understanding the emotional intelligence aspects of how to shift from those negative conditions into the positive conditions and the helpful ways. Now, Benny, a big reason why I wanted you on the podcast is because because of your support for community, not just mental health charities, but the community as a whole. I'm a very proud Cobar community member. And when I hear the name Benny Hewlett, I just think community straight away. And when I heard you talking at the start of this podcast, the start of this chat, it became evident to me, I believe, that that community aspect has come from the camaraderie within the defense force because you're used to people working together and having each other's back and i feel like you've taken that into the community aspects from what i've seen from the outside and experienced a little bit with some fundraisers and i've been told that if benny hewlett says right we're doing a fundraiser there would be 100 150 people at the click of a finger and they'd be there straight away and i know you've got some things coming up but which we'll discuss, but I want to know, Benny, why is it important for you to be this community driver and then tell us what are some of the most proud achievements for you that you've done for community? Prompt me if I get mixed up and lost and muddled through this. That's a big one. Okay. 
So I moved to Cobar six years ago and I always had a little bit to do with Cobar since the age of about seven or eight. So I'd always sort of Cobar was all at the back of my mind. And when left the army, found a job with Caterpillar, moved. To, I said to my wife at the time, I said, we should move to Cobar. It's really good. It's good money, good opportunity. Mum and dad love going there. I used to love going there with my brother. We should go there. We come in here. So Cobar's fairly remote, small country community. Very heavily reliant, excuse me, on mining and in part on agriculture as well. Fell in love with Cobar. I love Cobar. I'll, I'll defend it. If someone if someone talks ill of this town, I'll, I'll defend it. I don't have any problems with that. Why do I do the things I do for community? I like a small country community. I've lived in, lived in most capital cities in Australia at one point of time. Townsville, Brisbane, Darwin, Adelaide, Perth for a little bit, Wodonga, Sydney. So, you know, I've been there and done all that and did enjoy it. But, geez, I like growing up in a country town. I like the fact that my kids can grow up in a small country town. I love the fact that my eldest son can go from our place down to the skate park and before he's even got there, I've got a text message and a phone call going, you know your boy's down the skate park? And I'm like, yeah, I know. I like that. I, I like that comfortability. I like being able to walk into the supermarket and it takes me an hour to do a five-minute job because you're busy talking to everyone. I like the fact that when we go down the golf club and they've got the drawer on Saturday night, it takes you nearly an hour to get a seat because you're talking to everyone as you go and sit down. I love that. I love that sense of community. I love the belonging. I love being comfortable. And maybe that stems from, maybe that stems the hangover from anxiety. Maybe that's the opposite of my, my anxiety. This is a fairly new thought I'm just having in my head. But maybe that having those people around that know me and accept me for whatever quirks I have, maybe that, that takes a lot of the anxiety away from yeah, I'm going to think about that more later. That makes sense to me. Yeah, no, I, I do. I've, I've never really thought about it like that, but I think that makes a lot of sense. And so because of that, I know this, and I know that Cobar deserves to have good things. There's often a little bit of a complaint in Cobar. There's nothing to do in Cobar. And I thought, no, there's heaps of stuff to do in Cobar. And I like, I like having activities on the weekend. I love hearing people say... Oh, there's too much to do this weekend. I can't pick what I want to go to. The flat track's on, the footy's on, the rugby league, the rugby union's on. There's something else on in town. I don't know which one I want to go to. Great. Good. Because that means everyone's getting out and everyone's supporting something. And and selfishly, I'm a bit of a car head. So I like having car events. I like doing charity runs. I like doing poker runs and stuff like that. I like... Uh, if you can pick perfect weather in Coba, I like a great day and for people to get those cars out that hardly ever get out or bikes out. And I do it to fundraise because there's certain things that this town right at the moment doesn't have and I think the people of Coba deserve to have something in town and be proud of it because this is my home now. I'm excited. It's only another 14 years and I get to call myself a local. <laughs> you know, The boys down the pub won't give me such a razzin anymore but... There's, there's things in this town that I'm working towards because I, the people of this town deserve those good things. They deserve to have a World War One monument that they're proud of, that names their ancestors. They can look at that and say, that's my family name in stone forever, to say that person's sacrifice wasn't in vain. They deserve to have a miners' memorial for, the, for the, all the people that lost their lives to build an industry in this town to make it what it is. You know, we deserve to have fun events on the weekend where we can get our cars out or we can go and dancing out of the stars competitions or whatever we've got going on that year or 
the army band comes up and we have a, a three-course dining in night and then a dancing, you know, uh, ragtime, 1940s, big band, jazz-type dance night, you know, we're allowed to have those things and have fun. And those little bits of motivation or inspiration I was talking about before, that's how that starts. And some part of my brain will go, you know what we should do? We should do this. And then all of a sudden I'll start it and I'll rope my best friend Johnny De Bruyne into it. Next thing you know, it's bigger than Ben-Hur and you're like, oh, why did we decide to do this? I was, we had a, a while ago we had an event here with Petir and I was speaking for them as an ambassador and we went out and had a beer with you afterwards and you had all these notes that you'd written down of all these fundraising events that you were going to do just to make sure that Batir would stay in town. You had lists of different things. I can understand now when you talk about how your mind works and those things just come out. So it's all I would say is don't shut off that part of your mind. Let it keep happening because the town needs it, the community needs it. Like you said, you love Cobar, I love Cobar, I'm proud of where it's from. For people to say there's nothing to do, I feel like I'm living a city life here because the gym down the street now has got all this equipment and the that's OCR style and we're doing everything under the sun. I was at yoga the other day, we've got the pool which I can pretend is the beach. Everything is here, let alone all the, the bush lifestyle. So. I can understand your pride for and your putting your time and effort into the Cobar community. Now, you said you and Johnny De Bruin can create something that's bigger than Ben-Hur. Tell us about the event that's happening at the end of the year and what that's fundraising for. Uh, okay, so a little bit of quick history behind it. In 1982, there was a film released in Australia called Running on Empty. And this starred some really amazing uh, Australian actors and, and entertainers. So Deborah Conway, who most people would know, very accomplished singer. Max Cullen, from a hundred movies I can't even think of. Oils Ain't Oils, the Castro Lads, Sunday Too Far Away as the manager for the Sheeran team. Terry Ciaro, Jerry Sont, Richard Carter. Like these guys have all been in... um, Richard Carter was in one of the latest Mad Max movies. Um, Jerry Sont's been in there to Home and Away for years. Jeff Rowe. He was in another movie, a real big cult movie back in the 70s and 80s. And anyway, it was shot sort of in between Sydney and half in Sydney and half in Cobar. If you're a car head in Australia, there's two movies. There's Mad Max (laughs) and then the second one is Running on Empty. And anyone who's ever spent time in Cobar and knows it well or lives in Cobar or the, the older generation, people in their 50s and older, they can remember the movie being shot here. And you can watch the movie and you go, that's at the old res or that's down the street near the Great Western Hotel or that's out near the old Pinky and they've mined that and it's not even there anymore. So there's a sense of pride. You know, Cobar's full of proud people. There's a sense of pride when you watch that movie. One evening sitting at the back of my joint, I said to him, you know that movie Running on Empty? And he's like, yeah. And I said, you know, half of that was shot in Cobar. Like, was it? I'm like, yeah. We were pretty busy doing a lot of other fundraisers that year. I think we had... That year that you and I were talking about before, I think that we had an event a month for every year, for that year, which was the first... A fundraiser every month. Yeah, I think that was 2015 because that was 100 years since Gallipoli. That was a really big year there. That was, It was, it was that year. Anyway, so I started a website and I got on Facebook and I created an event and I did all this other stuff and I, I went through the movie and I went through the credits and I found all these people's names and then I got on the internet like the stalker I am and I tried to find all these people. So emails and text messages and phone calls and wasn't responded to too warmly to start with. Everyone probably thought I was a bit of a fanboy. And then all of a sudden 
couple of people went, oh, yeah, that'd be a cool event. Just guys with cool cars. Yeah, that'd be a cool event. We'll come over from Dubbo for it. And then a couple of guys from down Echuca are like, yeah, that sounds like a cool event. We'll come up from Echuca for it. And a few local boys are like, yeah, yeah, we'll get involved in that. And all of a sudden it started moving. And Anyway, we had more and more people and I started, you know, putting more stuff on the internet, more stuff on Facebook. And all of a sudden there was a couple of hundred people said they were interested. I thought, this has got legs. This might take off. And then I thought, oh, wonder if I can get some of the cars from the movie. And just by chance, a guy messaged me. And he said, you wouldn't believe it. And he goes, but there's there's two of us or three of us and we own the original 1970 Dodge Challenger from that movie. I'm like, no way. And I said, where are you guys? And they're like, Perth. I'm like, <laughs> So I had to sort of work a bit harder to raise enough money to go, right, hey, I'll help you get from Perth to Cobar with the car because I thought if I get that car, everyone else will line up behind it. This is the hunch I had. This is a hero car. So imagine Mad Max car. If you got that car, you want to follow so I got this Dodge Challenger, Fox 1. I thought if I can get the Fox, everyone will come in behind. So I got the Fox and I started ringing the actors or the actors' agencies. And I got in touch with Terry Ciaro. And Terry straight away was big fan, main actor from the movie, fantastic talent, very big in musicals. And he was keen straight away, yeah, let's do it. And then I got a couple of other actors, a couple of other minor actors said, yep, we'll do it. And I started announcing on the internet and on Facebook, you know, these actors are coming and these cars are coming. And all of a sudden there's a 1,000 people following it. Then there's 2,000 people following it. Then there's 3,500. And John and I are looking at each other and going, oh, what do we start? Are we going to be able to manage this? <laughs> and then all of a sudden Max Cullen, who played a blind, leftover, hungover 50s sort of mechanic, is a great character in the film. He's, I rang his agency and it turns out his agency is his wife. I don't, I, she answered the phone. I said, oh, it's good. It's Ben Hewlett speaking from Cobar. And she said, oh, you're the one organising that running on empty event. I heard about that the other day and I'm thinking, wow, how many people are talking about this? And I said, oh, look, I said, I was after uh, Max Cullen's agent. And she goes, well, I'm his wife. And I'm like, well, you're probably the best person to talk to. And I, was, I wanted to speak to... Mr. Cullen, I wanted to speak to Max about this event. Well, he's free right now. He's not home, but here's his mobile number. Ring him now. And I rang him and, and he was great on the phone. I was a bit nervous. He's like, yeah, young fellow, you just you send me one of those email things and I'll have a look at it. So I drafted up this email, not nothing too long and very to the point. And he emailed me back the next day and he goes, I'll be there. I'm there. And then I announced that on Facebook and it just went off in the internet and just phone calls and emails and messages and then next thing we know, we're in, what are we, in February. There's not one room left in Cobar. They're all booked out. If you want to stay in Cobar for the last weekend in October for the Running on Empty Festival, you have to camp or bring a caravan because there's nothing left. It might, maybe some Airbnbs will pop up, but you've got to be um, loving the outdoors, I think, to come into Cobar. Now. I'm sure some people will be renting out some rooms and that'll be a great event. So that's the last weekend of October. What are you guys raising money for for this one? So this one is, again, like all our fundraisers, we're raising money for a World War One monument. So I've got this picture in my head that myself and the RSL sub-branch all come up with one evening. A big line of, of rocks, nine of them, 50 names on each side of the rock, uh, each half of the rock on one side. So we worked out there was 450 people went away from Cobar for the war. Because Cobar back then, population now is 5,000. Population back in 1915 was 10,000. 
population of Cornishfield, which doesn't exist anymore, was 2,000. Cambaligo was a couple of thousand. Nimiji was a couple of thousand. So these big communities, townships, they were quite affluent back then. So 450 people, we want their names in brass on these rocks and on the back of the rocks have them um, drilled with tiny holes so you can put poppies or Australian flags in them and cover the rocks, just litter the back of the rocks with red poppies or Australian flags and at night time have some solar-powered lights charge in the day and then at night time the lights shine up from the ground and light up the names. So we're fundraising for that and if we spill over and we do really well then I want to start and we already have started on collecting World War II names and then Vietnam, Malaya, Borneo, Korea, Rwanda, Somalia, Iraq, Afghanistan, back to Iraq, Bougainville. So anything fairly contemporary after that, I want to get everyone's name on it. The other half that we're fundraising for is the Miners Memorial. So there's a there's a list that exists of everyone who lost their lives in mines since mining started in Cobar in 1869 when they found copper. And those people, we want to remember them. And Barry Knight's the one who started all this. And he's got a committee now and he's a very big driver and he's ridiculously active. I don't know how he's got the time for it. I look I look at the energy this guy's got. No, no, Barry would be Barry'd be nearly he'd have to be sixty. Sorry, Barry, if you're not listening, <laughs> but Barry he'd have to be sixty. And I look at his energy and I'm just like, that guy is unreal. I want to be that active when I'm sixty. So these are the two things that we split our fundraising time between now and Cobar. Brilliant. I'm sure you guys will spill over and anyone listening that has a caravan, you can tow it into Cobar for the last weekend of October and have that experience. Now, Benny, I'm all about action and I ask all my guests this question. What specific advice can you give to the listeners on what action they can take to become more impactful in their lives and in their communities? It's a fairly common one. I hear it a lot, but it is true. I know, I hope it doesn't come off as cheesy. But it's be the change you want to see. It's don't walk past something without change. If you walk past something and you see it's not right and you keep going on your path and you've accepted that, that's the, that's the standard you accept if you walk past it. If you stop and correct it or improve it, then that's the standard you're setting for yourself and setting for others. If you want the community to be a certain way and sometimes it feels like you're trying to hide back the t- hold back the tide, but just start doing it. It might be the littlest idea, the littlest thing. Get involved. What's your passion? That's the easiest, easiest way to do anything in this world. Because if you've got a little bit of passion about it, it's a thousand times easier to do it. It's not like you're going out there eating Brussels sprouts. If I love Brussels sprouts. <laughs> do you? Use <laughs> the butter and salt. That's the only way we got through them. If you're passionate about something, grab onto that passion and, and drive it. And then every step you take after that's easy. And then once you can get your momentum from following something you're passionate about, all the other stuff that's not as passionate for you becomes easier because you've got that momentum and you're moving forward. You're leaning into it. So I'd say don't walk past something if you want the standard to be better and be passionate and be be motivated be the change i love it and i'm always intrigued about how people learn from other people and what they'd love to learn more of so if you could ask just one question to any mentor in the world and who would it be and what would you ask and it doesn't have to be an existing mentor it doesn't have to be someone that you have had it can just be someone in the world that you would love to learn from I'd always like to have that dinner party where you get to invite everyone 
you get to invite Gandhi and Buddha and Jesus and you could sit down and work out the whole thing. No. Um, I'd love – my father passed away in, in August last year from a farm accident and I didn't realise it until I looked back on my phone about a month ago. He and I spoke every day and if I didn't ring him, he rung me. And I guess when you lose someone very close to you, especially a parent, and you think back on all the advice they gave you and everything they walked through with you at life, whether they were your, your parent when you started growing up and then as you got older and you're you know, late teens, early 20s, they started to become more your friend than your parent because you're walking on your own life then and they were sort of just walking along with you, not guiding you through it. So selfishly, I'd love, I don't know, to ask dad a hundred more questions and I hope I can answer the questions to my kids the way my dad did for me. I look at someone who I find inspiring, people like Tom Morello, the guitarist from Rage Against the Machine, someone like that, someone like Nelson Mandela, any of those guys, Jimmy Page from Led Zeppelin. I look at any of those guys that have had very interesting lives and I read about them and then what I do is I find out who motivates or inspires them and I go back to their origin. So Nelson Mandela, he read a lot of Shakespeare and he read Sun Tzu, The Art of War, and he read a bit of Ernest Hemingway, which I found interesting. And I've gone back and I've read some of those things, like I've read Sun Tzu, The Art of War, and I've read those things that motivate my heroes or people that inspire me. And then I come across a documentary and Jimmy Page even said it. He goes, if you want to get into music, find your favourite musician and then find your favourite musicians, favourite musicians. And then all of a sudden I started listening to stuff that Jimmy Page listened to like Link Ray and Rumble and all these really cool early early 50s, late 40s sort of musicians. So if I've got any advice, I'd say find someone that inspires you and then find out who inspires them. That's brilliant. I love that. So modelling is a big way that we can learn from people but then model the model. So I think that's brilliant. <laughs> now... Benny, first of all, I'm sorry to hear about your father and, uh, you know, I can understand you wanting to ask a hundred questions and it's just, it's actually lovely to hear the relationship that you guys had. So well done on, on that and reflecting on that that's the relationship that you want to have with your kids. Now, congruency to me uh, is living true to my values and one of my top core values is giving. I give all my guests a gift for coming on to the podcast. <laughs> Knowing that you're a motor motorhead and you love your cars and everything, I've just won the lotto, so I've bought you a brand new van for this running on empty. And so here we are. We've got a, oh, a man, V-Dub cool. van. Nice, nice. He's a big money now. <laughs> so everyone listening, I haven't won the lotto. and I've just – now, this is a joke. I've just jokingly giving him a little wheelie V-Dub van, although I would love to have one. But no, Benny – for you, I want to give you a pass into a spot in for my next online program called Mental Strength Training. And I was thinking about it a lot and knowing your life experiences and the professional help you've had and your lived experiences and the way that you've taught yourself, I always love to see how people learn through more experiences and I'd be very intrigued. I believe that there's some other things that you could learn from this mental strength training and I'll be very intrigued what I can learn from you in how you learn from this program. So that's what I'm giving to you. Yeah, thank you. That sounds that sounds great, man. Hey, it sounds really good. I'm looking forward to it. Now, where can our listeners learn more about you? And now this might just be directed around the, <laughs> uh, the, the charity side of things and the events, but on social media, on 
you mentioned Facebook there a bit. Yep. And then how can I and the listeners help you on your journey? Well, okay. So if you want to help me on a journey of supporting my community, you can find most things we do are on Facebook on the internet. So if you at the moment type in Running on Empty Festival, you'll bump into a website by the same name and you'll bump into a Facebook page by the same name and you can have a look at the things we're doing there and we're selling simple stuff like we're doing merchandise for the event. If anyone's into like the lowbrow, Ed Roth, like monster car sort of images, we do a lot of that for um, our merchandise for Running on Empty which will be online next month. Of course, anything that we do, do, we allow people to donate. Of course, it's towards um, the RSL sub-branch. So any donations you made are, of course, tax deductible, which is always handy come July. So basically anything we do is publicised very well if people want to come on board and offer to help with running any of the events, more hands the merrier. If they want to help financially, that's fantastic as well. Whatever level of involvement they want, 100% encourage you to get in contact with me whichever way you want and I'll um, I'll help you as best I can. Brilliant. I'll link all that up in the show notes. Before we finish up, do you have anything else to say to the listeners? The first one would be thank you very much to Brett and well done on everything you've achieved up until this point in time because I think what the work you've done, what you've achieved as a person, what you've achieved professionally for what you do for day-to-day life and what you've done with the podcast, I think, is incredible it's a credit to you and you come look you come from highly recommended by your beautiful family um i love all you guys so well done on everything you've done there and probably the last thing i'll leave you with from everything in my journey that i've found is most important with everything when you're talking to anyone who's having a bad day or suspect of having a bad day is body language is everything if you're sitting there talking on your phone or writing on a bit of paper or watching the TV and you ask someone, how are you going? It's only just going to bounce off the surface and keep skimming along. If you stop what you're doing, put your head down in motion and maybe tilt your head, maybe even place your hand on that person's arm or shoulder and say, hey, how are you going? You're being a lot more honest and sincere about it. And I've found people that have done that for me, that's been huge. And sometimes I've had that happen to me and I've broken down and I didn't even mean to. I was feeling fine and someone genuinely asked me how I was feeling and I broke down and I told them how I was feeling because I wasn't feeling great underneath it all. And I've had other times where people have asked me that and I've just felt, I'm good and I'm, thanks heaps for asking, eh? Thanks heaps for asking. And if, and if you think someone's having a bad day, give them everything. Give them your eye contact, give them your body language. And if it's someone you know really well, physically reach out and touch them. If it's someone you're comfortable with putting their hand on their shoulder or putting their hand in your hand and saying, how you going? That's everything. That's the world. And if you can do that and take that first step, everything else after that's easy. Benny, you're a legend. (laughs) You're a humble, genuine human being that deserves more than life. If we could all model just one element of your soul, this world would be much better off. Keep shining your determined and caring light to the world, my man. Thanks, buddy. Thank you very much. Wow. What a journey. And I can guarantee you there's plenty more stories and much more awesomeness packed up in that human. Make sure you check out the Facebook page for the Running on Empty Festival and help support this huge charity event. And if you've got a caravan, you can wheel on into Cobar and enjoy the event itself. Actually, knowing Cobar, I'm sure if you find some connections through the Facebook page, you'll find people who will have homes or part of their homes available for you to rent. 
And if you're interested in joining the mental strength training program that I spoke to Benny about, or simply want to learn more information about this powerful interactive online program, you'll find all the details at yourlifeofimpact.com forward slash coaching. I'm excited to have Benny in this round and I feel he'll bring some value to the whole community through sharing his take-homes when he implements the habits, tools and strategies he learns from the program. I'm extremely grateful you've taken the time to listen to this episode and would love it if you could share it with anyone you believe will gain value from it also. And as always, remember, this is your life journey, your life of impact. 